You're listening to The Pandemic Podcast, where we equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Bodker, and I'm with my one good friend, and I feel like my only friend right now uh, in light of where I'm at, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Mark Kissler is not here. He is on call, not on call. He's actually at the hospital doing his work, and he'll be back next week. I feel like forever. Stephen, good to see you. It's been forever. Yeah, it seems like it has been. It's really good to see you too. Yeah, this is good. I love the FaceTime. It's, it feels good to be connected. It's good to have a live audience of zero. So it makes you feel like... <laughs> yeah, it feels very fitting for the pandemic. Yeah, right? yeah, it totally is. Of course, there's a live We're, audience. Yeah, there's zero. a live audience of absolutely zero people. But yeah. anyway, I'm glad you're doing well. I'm glad to be back. I, I, I am appreciative of all the listeners from last week. We did. We weren't live, but I think the recording went well. It was well received and uh, we're back together and our audience continues to grow, which is really exciting. So please share this with people. So let's get straight into that. First of all, uh, thank you for all of the reviews. I didn't post one right here. We just had another recent one who thought this was one of the best pandemic podcasts. I'll, if I can find that before we end, I'll give a shout out. Otherwise, I'll shout that out next week. So thank you for all the reviews. Please have them. Please continue to have them come through. We reached 100. The goal last week, I really wanted to get 100 reviews. We reached it literally at the 12th hour. So we're good. But I want more than that. Let's go to 125, 200. Keep this going to help get this into other people, to help bring sanity to people's world in the midst of confusion. And we'll talk about the confusion because I'm, I like I keep telling Stephen and Mark, I'm part of this podcast. Now, I'm not the informer. I'm oftentimes the informed, but I'm part, I'm part, I, I hang out with these people and I still have no idea what to say sometimes. And people say, well, it's all a conspiracy, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't even know how to begin. And I feel like I don't even know. So if I'm feeling that way, I would imagine a lot of you who are listening feel the same way when you get the same stuff. So we're here to help um, share this with people. Uh, let's continue the reviews. If you want to financially support us, we still have a decent amount of things like doing this live. Uh, costs money, and we want to offer this as a small uh, token of uh, as, as a thank you. You can give as little as five dollars a month. Patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. Or if you feel, if you feel like you're like, no, I can't give monthly. Maybe just one small donation. That's great. You can do that through Venmo or PayPal. All in the show notes. And also one last drop. Stephen and I chatted last week or a couple weeks ago. It dropped last week on living the real. Just about talking about what it means to live the most real life possible in the context of Stephen's life, his profession, his history. It was really, really good. I got a lot out of it. I think you will too. Go over to livingthereal.com, subscribe to the podcast, check out my episode with him. I'm now trying to force Mark to do the same thing. We'll see. He's been totally not even responding to me. So that's what we'll see. We'll see what happens. Okay. So let's get started. First thing, Stephen, guess what? Hey, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I went out. So I went outside. Now I went outside. I had to go to a meeting for a client. And this was my first time. I and mean, we've been outside. we in the Rocky Mountain National Park. We didn't really get out much because it was packked like two weeks ago. Like, and nobody's wearing yeah. masks. And so we just like didn't want to risk it. We were, we were okay. We did see a big moose and a mom and a cool. baby moose were, like swimming in this lake. Were they totally wearing masks? awesome. <laughs> yeah. They, they were the only two. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> Those moose, they, they, they got it down. <laughs> that was awesome. So the, I, we went there. We've gone out for like mountains. We've seen Nana. But this is the first time I had to go see a client, had a team meeting. And it was crazy. We went to Top Golf, which definitely is not probably recommended. I don't think it's a necessary travel, but we went there. It was a really good time. I wore my mask nonstop, and I was the only one wearing a mask. And I was, I was trying to be as careful as possible. I know the staff was trying to be as careful as possible, but it was just a weird world, Stephen, to go in and nobody wearing masks, everybody just having a good time, which I, I want people to have a good time. But just, it just the weight of feeling like you're tempted, like there's nothing going on. I mean, this, this, all, seems, this yep. all seems normal, right? There's, there's, there's no, there's no problems. So I, I, it's, it was a weird experience. I felt like I was in like in two different worlds. So that's crazy. Okay. Let's, let's continue on. We have a lot to cover in the news. So first thing I want to go straight to you, Stephen. Uh, I saw this article about how deadly is COVID-19. Of course, this is always in the news. Where are we at? But I just wanted to bring this back into a, a full circle of this says researchers are getting closer to the answer. In light of where you're at, from where we started in March and the fear of what it was going to be and what we're kind of seeing the data show more and more, where do we see we're at now with, with its kind of uh, lethal nature? Yeah, so it's going back to some of the conversations that we had before, you know, figuring out how lethal a new virus is, is is really difficult because there's usually a lot of uncertainty in both the numerator and the denominator, basically the number of deaths you have and the number of cases that you have. And there's there's all sorts of reasons for that. One of that is, you know, incomplete testing. 
One of it is misattribution of deaths to its causes. I mean, actually assigning death to a particular cause can be really difficult. Like, did, did COVID kill this person or did they die with COVID or, you know, what? And then there's also the, the temporal aspect where you know, we know that, that deaths follow cases by a couple of weeks. So if you divide the current number of deaths by the current number of cases, um, you're going to get an underestimate because the people who are infected now who, who might go on to die later have I just haven't done that yet yeah. and so 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 it can be shifted in all of these sorts of different directions which is what makes it really difficult now the reason why we're getting closer now is because what we really need is is sort of these retrospective studies so places where an epidemic has already come through and we need the serological tests so we know how many people have been infected in the past at any point um, and that's why it's taken this long to sort of start to pin down these numbers. As far as I can tell, it's it's not terribly different from kind of what we expected. It still seems to be on the order of a half to one percent, depending on the population, depending, you know, because that that, of course, is like glossing over a huge, huge amount of variability, depending on how old you are, male, female, socioeconomic status, all of these different things play into basically what, what the risk of death is. So we're beginning to pin it down. But I think the most important thing is we're beginning to pin it down more and more precisely for different parts of the population. And that, that's yeah. always a big goal in epidemiology is to understand specifically how certain things affect certain populations, because that that allows us to see you know, who's, who's at greatest risk and what's the best way of, of, of responding. In light of the, you're talking about the increased cases, we continue to see a rise in cases. Now we're starting to see, which I think is, right? We're starting to see the effects of the cases in, in mortality, right? I, right? I just saw in the news, maybe this was yesterday, today, U.S. records over 1,000 coronavirus deaths in a single day, first time since early June. I'm not sure what that really means. You know, and I also see, right, that California is really struggling. And in light of this, I have two kind of part questions. Where do you see us in the death toll right now? Do you see it's continue to, do you expect it to continue to rise? Are we starting to peak at this 1,000 cases in a single day? And in light of what we see with California and the rise of cases, are we seeing the effects of July 4th now? Or when do you, when do you, when do you expect to see those effects start to trickle in, which was already kind of Memorial Day in the, in the aftermath of the opening as well? Yeah. So, and it, right. As you mentioned, we, we talked a couple of weeks ago about like, why, why aren't we seeing more deaths right now? Yeah. And, and the primary, I mean, my, my, my primary thought was that it was probably just a matter of time. And it, and it seems like that's, that's the case here. And so if you, I think, I think the best way to look at it is just, you know, it, and on a lot of these different dashboards that you can look up online, you can see the number of cases over time and the number of deaths. And you can sort of mentally sort of shift one of those curves, you know, a little bit forward in time and see where they line up. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably the best way to anticipate where we're going. And so yeah. unfortunately, I think that that means we're going to see probably another couple of weeks of increasing deaths across the country as well, because that's just these cases that we've observed just sort of following their progression of illness over time. It does seem like, as far as I can tell, um, like I've been trying to follow Florida, for example, and it seems like their positivity rate is maybe plateauing a little bit. Okay. The last week or so, it's been a lot more stable than it has been, as well as the total number of cases. So I'm hopeful that that's some of the interventions that we've put into place is, are, are starting to take effect and that those are starting to level. And then in, in, eventually that, that will cause the deaths to plateau. But I think there's going to continue to be an increase for a while, unfortunately, before then. So I think, I think, I think we might be in for another difficult couple of weeks yeah. um, around the country. So. And do you expect September, October to still see an increase? I'm curious. I mean, we've seen all of this going up. It's pretty significant. You say, well, you know, the next two or three weeks might seem a little bit of a difficult time for us. Do you expect this to kind of then maybe hopefully begin to subside a little bit? Or do you still expect that September, October is going to maybe ramp back up again? Yeah. So, and I guess this gets back to a bit of the second part of your earlier question too, is that I think, you know, it seems like three to four weeks is about the amount of time between something happening and then cases really starting to show up, at least at the public level. So I think probably starting maybe next week or so, if, if 4th of July gatherings contributing to spread, then we'll might maybe start to see an increase again in some places that's sort of kicked off by that a little bit. But yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping that things will plateau a little bit, but I do, I mean, I, I do, I do really worry about sort of this fall wave that, that could be coming. As far as I can tell, it really seems like there's no reason to think why it, that it won't. It doesn't seem like we have enough immunity in the population to prevent it. 
it does seem like this coronavirus is biologically similar enough to the other human coronaviruses and the pandemic flu that it ought to follow similar patterns. And so, I mean, mathematical modeling aside, I, I think that our, our historical experience with these sorts of viruses suggests that that there's a very good chance that it will continue to spread and we'll, we'll probably see another increase in a lot of different places come September, October. Uh, and I think that's that's really kind of what we need to be preparing for now and, you know, improving contact tracing. You know, there's a couple things we can talk about, but there's been a lot of talk recently about the importance of these paper strip tests that we were talking about way back when. Oh yeah. And how, if, if, if we could find a way to get people to take these tests really frequently, like on the order of every day or every other day, even though the tests are not very specific. So even though you'll get a lot of false negatives, that would still be enough to identify early enough people who are positive and cause them to change their behavior to stop interacting with people that it should be able to sort of flatten some of these curves a lot more effectively. Wow. So that's, that's one of the, I mean, I, I, I feel like that's one of the things that I've been trying to tell everybody I know about lately, because <laughs> it's like, it seems like one of the most, one of the most important things that we can do going forward, because I, I think that we're going to need sort of all hands on deck, all the tools we have available to mitigate whatever could happen this fall. And again, maybe it will be nothing, but I think that that's unlikely. So. Yeah. So these uh, these paper tests, like we talked about, these, are, are these now available? I'm just out of the loop. Can I go to Amazon.com and buy some? Or like, Boy, I so I don't think so. I think that a lot of them are still sort of undergoing licensure, and I think that part of the issue for that though is that they're being considered as diagnostics. But but we wouldn't be treating them really as diagnostics. We'd be treating them as surveillance tools. And I think that that's a lot of what the advocacy has been around right now is that it's, we're not actually determining people's care based on these things. The idea would be that if you get a positive, then you go to the doctor and you get the, the full on PCR test. That's a lot better and a lot more specific and sensitive. And then then you know really truly whether or not you've got COVID. But this is sort of like a sentinel thing. And this, this helps us sort of modulate our behavior. And so I think, I think one of the roadblocks there is the licensure, but that's sort of because of the paradigm with which we're, we're, we're thinking about what these things actually are. And I think that what they'd actually be used for is something different. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's the hope is that we could sort of push through that and, and say, you know, actually we need to like ramp up the production of these and the dissemination of these things for the sake of public health rather than necessary for clinical decision-making. And so the, maybe we can talk about this some more next week too. I'm planning to do a lot of research over the course of the next Great. week to see sort of where the roadblocks are. Yeah. And I, I, maybe some of the listeners have thoughts on this too, or they've oh, done yeah. some research into this themselves. Let's, let's hear about it because I think that this is a super interesting area to think about. And I, you know, I'm just trying to learn as much as I can. So. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, email us. If you have any information, Matt at livingthereal.com. I'll give it to Steven. Now, are you talking about like particularly the roadblocks of the paper test? Like this is the this is the big thing. Like try to get this into the hands of people as quickly as possible and, and get the license for it. As far as I can tell, that, yeah, that seems like one it. of the best things we can do right yeah. now. Great, yeah. man. That'd be awesome. I'd love it. Uh, let me know when there is. I'll be on Amazon.com and I'll be buying yeah. a bunch. So <laughs> on top of that, we have... Sweden coming in, uh, mentioning that now with immunity. So we're talking about testing, now antibodies, this hope of herd immunity. And this has been, I think the past couple of weeks, this has been a lot of discussion on herd immunity. Is it possible? How long? To what extent? Will vaccines work? All this stuff, mixed metal. And here's uh, Sweden saying that they their studies show that maybe the immunity will last about a half a year. So in light of that, what have you seen this and what, what's going on with this piece of information? Because it doesn't seem to go with the idea of uh, a, a, a yearly flu. Like, uh, you know, in my mind, I'm like, crap, I have to get a booster every six months, which sounds ridiculous. So what's, what's with this? Yeah. So I think that it's, there's been a lot of talk recently about sort of what constitutes immunity. So we're at the point where we can measure, measure certain parts of the human immune response to COVID and, and sort of see how it's responding. But we still don't know how that translates actually into how your body responds to an incoming infection. And the, the immune system is insanely complex. And I, I have a very, very passive understanding about it. I know that there are letters attached to types of cells and that they do different things. Um, and so <laughs> awesome. I think that I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I, I really wish Mark was here because I yeah, think he'd I be able to just, you know, run laps around my immunological understanding <laughs> right now. Sure. But in my, in my rough understanding, a lot of what has been measured is B cell response and B cells are sort of like the things that run around and recognize, recognize invading pathogens and then sort of like ramp up your immune response. But there are also things called T cells, which are related to the B cell response, but they also sort of act as this sort of adaptive immune system. So they can sort of like linger in your immune system and help with that immune response as well. And it seems like these things decay at different rates and that you might retain some of one, but maybe not as much of another. 
So all that's to say, it does seem like there's evidence that the immune response to COVID probably declines. There are a lot of pathogens that this happens for, and this happens for all of the other coronaviruses that we know of. So this, this is not really surprising. And this was actually one of the fundamental assumptions that we built into the models that we produced back in April, where we actually thought the most likely scenario was that we would see this pandemic, maybe a couple waves of it, but then it would keep circulating every year or two, depending on how long that immunity lasts. But the other good thing is that so even if even if you're susceptible to reinfection, again, experience with past coronaviruses suggests that your body's recognition of the virus will help prevent that reinfection from being as severe as well. So that could be very helpful too, because even if COVID keeps circulating, it might not be the COVID that we think of now. Mm. And if there is truly this seasonal variation in how likely it is to transmit, then that would also extend the amount of time that we need between our booster shots. It would be more similar to flu, where since since enough of the population would have sort of low levels of immunity, that might be enough to sort of prevent transmission altogether in the summer. And then we would need our shots. You, know, I, you could even imagine combining it with the flu shot. You'd have a flu and COVID shot. You'd just get all at once. Yep. And then that would hopefully be enough to sort of reduce the effects of, of both, both of those infections in the in the winter time. So that's I think that's actually the most likely scenario there is that we'll probably get annual covid shots along yeah, with the flu. Totally. Um, it's a great way to expose again once again the complexity of it. Just the way you said it, I mean it made total sense, but all the just even though, right, that we may see it last 6 months there's still all these other factors to help contribute to the seasonal effects. The fact that even somebody is immune for 3 to 6 months does help curb it versus someone who doesn't. So <clears throat> excuse me all of this goes into 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 the into the consideration of there's still a lot of hope for the the immunity and the herd immunity and those kind of things. Now you mentioned vaccines. This is also hugely in the news. I got like seven articles on this just in the past like five days. I, I don't know if it's Hope Week or where we're trying to get energy going. We're just like the, the, there is an end because times, Stephen. I don't feel like it's ever going to end. It's just like I feel like I'm just treading along. Uh, it's just a difficult road, and I get these articles. It gets us excited. It gets our family excited. What can you speak to this? Uh, we know we got the Boston one, which is which is what's the name of that one? Moderna. Moderna, right? But now we have Oxford and China in the mix. Some headlines seem to, to lend that Oxford's ahead of all the game. I'm not sure. Can you speak into where we're at with these vaccines and what you might see in the next coming months and what you might expect potentially for, for, for us for a vaccine? Yeah. So I'm, I'm admittedly encouraged by the fact that there are, there are sort of multiple shots on goal right now. Yeah. And it's still, it's still not any guarantee that, that they will, that any one of them will necessarily come through. But I think this is about as optimistic of a scenario as we could be in right now. The, all three of these vaccines that you mentioned are, are sort of pushing through the regulatory phases about as quickly as one can do safely, and and there's been promising results. I mean, I've, I've been following especially the the vaccine results from Oxford and from Moderna, and both of them seem to contribute a substantial immune response. Both of them seem to have relatively mild side effects. I think especially the Oxford one seems to be especially at least in the people who it was tested on, I, I think that's right. There, there weren't many side effects at all. With the Moderna one, there, there were some, but it, uh, they seemed pretty manageable for most people. And so, so I think that's very encouraging in the fact that they're mounting an immune response. So, so I think a part of the reason why this was Hope Week, I think, is, is partly because of just the regulatory process, because there's, there are fixed amounts of time that you need to run these studies. And so in, to a certain extent, what we're seeing right now are essentially the front runners coming through those gates. Okay. And, and it needed to take this long and, and they're, they're getting there, which is, which is really exciting. And so, so I'm definitely hopeful. It'll be, it'll be really interesting to see what happens over the coming months. You know, the big, the big question is whether these things are going to be safe on a very large scale. So these are the phase three trials that, that the vaccines are going into now. And I think this is where the, the idea that the Oxford vaccine is a little bit ahead because I think they're going to enter that phase three trial, uh, a little bit sooner than the others. And so this is the stage where, where a lot of people get it. I think on the order of thousands. And then you monitor both effectiveness and then also safety at that large scale and try to understand what the, what the very rare side effects could be so that you can make sure that it's safe for the entire population. So that'll be key. You know, it's any one of these stages, any sort of vaccine or therapeutic can get tripped up and safety is, safety is hugely important, right? It's like, the, the last thing we want is a therapeutic that's worse than the thing that it prevents, right? Sure. Like that's, uh, and, and, and those things happen. You know, we, ha we have a history of those sorts of things that, that, 
that it, it can it can happen. So we, so we do really need to be cautious for sure, and that's part of why it's going to take a while before before this this comes through. But like I said, this is about as optimistic of a scenario as I could have imagined. So uh, awesome. so I think that's great. Do you still expect maybe end of the year, early New Year, or, or what's Harvard talking about when they're like, oh, this is good news? Are they are they having speculations? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just to get through the trials again. It will it will take sort of the rest of the year and to analyze the data from those. So, so I think I think the soonest we could expect is early next year. Again, if these things just sort of keep marching right through the process, and so we'll just have to see. But that's it's it's still a possibility, and it's a possibility that I think was at the beginning of this. I would have thought that possibility was pretty remote. Now I think it's 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 a lot more plausible. That's great. Now you're talking about the safety. Now I wanted, uh, this is a curveball idea. We, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but mm-hmm. I have to caution myself about how I ask this question because there's people who are listening probably who are aware of these people. But I, I heard right that some a couple of close people mentioned that they they're going to not take the vaccine because of there's just too many complications. And I was and then this got into a circle and there's somebody who's very susceptible, right? And then thinking that maybe it's not worth it, right? So that that's a little it's a little so. Where are they getting this information? Because in my mind, I'm like, it's we're not even into phase three yet. Do we? Do we even? I mean, who's who's determining the 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 final verdict on its safety? Are, have there been like gross, terrible side effects that that that's circulating in the media that's causing some people to say, "Wow, this sounds more dangerous to take it than to." Now, I get it. Like for me and my demographic, I'm 42. You know, it, it is an option probably for me to take the vaccine or not because. It may not affect me as much or whatever, but for someone who's 80 or 70 or 60 or immune compromised, I feel like in my mind, I'm like, the vaccine seems to be a way bigger pro than the cons by the side effects. Is there anything in the news that you've seen or what you in your research that even supposes that some of these vaccines can be pretty harmful? So, I mean, there's, there is definitely a risk to many different vaccines. There are, there are things. So I think the most common one that's silent, that's cited is the Julian Barre syndrome, which is like basically an overactive immune response that you can get for certain types of vaccines. It's pretty rare. It's quite rare, but, but it does happen. I, I, I know someone who's for it to, for whom that happened. And so I think that it's, you know, it's, Basically, it's. I, I think that it's really important to hear the voices of people who are concerned about getting a vaccine, especially in you know the very quick timelines that are happening right now. I mean, I think that yeah. there there is reason to be reasonably you know cautious about receiving a vaccine. I I personally, I mean, being familiar with a lot of these trials and and even with with many of the people who are conducting them, I I have a lot of trust frankly in them i think that they're they are really sort of um seem to be crossing their t's and dotting their i's and really really doing their best to make sure that this is this is this this will work and so but but you're right i mean i think that it's one of the things that i frequently hear people talking about you know when somebody says like i don't want to get a vaccine there there's a lot of this sort of like shaming about like you know how could you they're safe they're effective and sure. it's like well like that's you know i i am absolutely an advocate for vaccines for sure but I think that there's a lot of the people who are arguing against them. You know, some some are some are truly based on on things that don't have any evidence base. But but some there there are some nuanced arguments there for that that I think are worth at least being heard, even if they can be argued against. So I think I want to actually address sort of what you're saying from a from another perspective, which is that as has been the case throughout this this epidemic, the the, the most the, the most crucial thing by far is not only what we're doing to protect our own health, but what we're doing to protect the health of the people around us. Mm-hmm. And that is the value of vaccines. That's why I get a flu shot every year because I, I, so, and, and it's especially important with vaccines because usually vaccines are most effective in younger people. They're, they're effective in people who can mount an immune response. Um, and oftentimes the efficacy of vaccines declines in the age groups that are most susceptible for the, for the worst outcomes from infection. And so I have an ability to protect those older groups who might not actually be protected, even if they get vaccinated from infection. And so I see that as my responsibility to even take on some amount of personal risk, even though, and, and I, and I'm convinced, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm very hopeful that that personal risk will be lower than the personal risk that I would face if I were to actually get COVID. Sure. Otherwise, we shouldn't be getting the vaccine anyway. Sure, absolutely. Right? Like like the the personal like the personal risk of vaccination <laughs> should never exceed the personal risk of getting right. Yeah. So that that's that that comes yeah. first, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Sure. But also, I think that there's just like wearing a mask. It's my responsibility to protect the people around me, and that's the paradigm that I'm thinking about vaccination from, and why I would advocate for especially young, healthy people to get it. 
Man, you just dropped a bomb, Stephen Kistler. <laughs> That's awesome. So that gets to the other thing. Where number one, you've you've really kind of helped motivate me in the sense of my responsibility, my personal. I hope I hope I hope it's uh, affected some of the listeners and share this with other people. But you just led to another thing that I forgot. I read in the article about how hey, there's 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 a, there's a huge footnote that some of this may not be that effective. These vaccines for seventy and eighty year olds because they just don't amount. And I'm like, oh my gosh, is so. I was wondering, is this specific towards this vaccine? And you think you just answered the question that no, it's not. This has a tendency to be, in general, all vaccines suffer from its effectivity when it comes to older generations, right? And right. so this one is just no different. And right. all the more, you know, not to not to like, you know, preach from a pulpit. It's it's Stephen's pulpit here right now. I'm just echoing <laughs> it. That that all the more that the younger people had the greatest chance to 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 take to have it be effective and help protect those around us, right? Absolutely. Awesome bomb. That was great. Loved it. (laughs) So speaking of bombs, another big bomb, the the White House administration has decided to take away all hospital data from CDC and move it to their own their own system. I don't fully understand this whole complexity. It sounds like there's some redundancy. My first initial my first initial question was, do they even have a system to take care of this? I mean, this is this is a pretty big. I mean, this is a pretty big deal, right? It's not like a little Excel sheet that you can just kind of run pivot tables on. It's a little bit it's a little bit bigger. So I'm just curious, not getting into the politics of stuff, but does this affect you, Steve, in any way? I mean, I mean, you're getting data all over the place. I get it. But is, is now data going to be a little more difficult for you to obtain now that it's no longer in the CDC? Or is it still going to the CDC? Or is it no longer? Where, where is it at today? And how does it affect you? Yeah. So my, my understanding is that a, a lot of the data, and I, I need to double check this, but it seems like most, if not all, of the same data that has been reported by the CDC will still be reported by them. It just won't be reported to them first. It will be reported to a second agency that has uh, sort of a different part of control over it. So I'm a little concerned about that, just given that the CDC has historically always been the agency that has been responsible for these sorts of things. And so we're just not really sure what to expect from that transition. We're not really sure what to expect of like how that reporting is going to go. But similarly, many states have been sort of taking charge of a lot of their own reporting as well. Mm-hmm. In various other platforms, universities, journalists have been uh, involved in collecting data as well. So I think that there are a lot of different repositories out there and things, you know, so uh, frankly, I, I I haven't been checking the CDC's numbers much. I, I check the Johns Hopkins University dashboard, which which is okay. based off of the COVID tracking project. And okay. and that's that's where I get the most reliable information that I that I can tell. Okay. Frankly. So that okay. and then peer-reviewed publications that are coming out. So okay. so I don't think it'll change my day-to-day business very much, but I think it, I think it is, you know, from a from a social and political perspective definitely an important move and one that I'm not entirely sure how to make sense of yet. Yeah, sure. Yep. And I yeah, I'm yeah, I'm the same concerns. Like I just don't know what's what's the purpose of this. I mean, I could I can get into the theory of what they what the White House thinks about the CDC and maybe their particular slant and now they remove that. But you know, there is fear, like anything. On both sides, there's this fear of what's going to happen with the data uh, once it gets in and how it's communicated. I'm glad. I mean, in my mind, I'm kind of ignorant of this. I'm ignorant of this. I checked the Hopkins as well, right? That's my major my major place where I go to. But I said, know where they got their information. Was it the CDC and this is just a nice GUI interface for it? Or is it their own research and which sounds like that's what they do? They pull their own data from multiple sources and there's there's no there's other places, right? It's right. not it's not just a monopoly on right. data. Okay. Great. All right. So talking about that, next thing I want to talk about in the news is infections with kids. So again, this 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 affects me, at least not directly. We're going to have our our son either homeschooled or online classes for the, his kindergarten uh, this year. But I have a friend. We're in a staff meeting and talking about how hey the the the, the district really doesn't know the ramifications or the impact of how kids transmit infect. So we're opening up and we're going to be cautious. We're going to plan for the worst case scenario. And so that just, that just kind of brought back into my head. Well, is this true? Like have, I know back in March and April, we were, we were really intensive. Like there may not be even one infection of a kid. Now we've learned that's from that actually do kids do get infected, right? Do we know anything more about the extent that they're infected and the difference between infected and the possibility for them to transmit it to another person. Yeah, so absolutely, it's possible for kids to get infected. We know that for sure now. It does seem like, as I think the most recent evidence that I've seen is that very young kids transmit COVID substantially less, whereas 
older kids, like adolescents, seem to act a lot more like adults do. Okay. And so, and we've seen schools that have reopened in different parts of the world and have had to shut down again because of outbreaks that are happening. And so I think that really what this, this underscores is that if, if we are going to bring schools back first, you know, I'm, I'm really encouraged by the fact that, that they say that they have uh, a plan in place for the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. I think that that sort of planning and very clear communication about at what stages certain decisions will be made. Mm-hmm. Super important. I mean, the most important thing really in any public health intervention at all is is trust fundamentally, because without that, none of this is going to work. So as long as you have the trust and the buy-in of the teachers, of the staff, of the students, of the parents, then I think that there's a lot more possibility of this working and, and, and working safely. And it seems like probably going back to school would be a much safer thing to do for very young kids. The nice thing is that that overlaps with the age groups where uh, that benefit most from in-person yeah instruction whereas a lot of times older students can sort of cope a little bit better with with remote instructions so i think in 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 some sense we're we're kind of lucky there and so it's an incredibly complex process i think this is you know again one of those places where frequent testing could be a really valuable yeah. aspect of this in the fall so i think that all of these different things will have to play into it and we'll just we'll just have to be paying really close attention so i think that i do think there are ways to to open schools safely, but we really need to be mindful about how we're doing it and really be mindful of that probably variation in the propensity of transmission among different age groups. Yeah. It's just been complicated. Again, uh, the the idea of having a plan is just so important. I know that's probably like obvious, but the complexity of the plan, I mean, just going back to work, you know, I'm starting to go back to work and go to the office. And before I can go back to work, my family's been sick for the past 10 days. I started having a cough two days ago. And then at the last minute, we just pulled the trigger. Our boss said, just don't come in. And, and and because and because of this, we're like, oh crap! We need to have a policy of like, if a family member is sick, if a kid is sick, if I'm sick, what does it mean to be sick? Uh, what does it mean to have a temperature? When do you not come in? When do you and like, uh, we didn't even discuss this. Like, we need to have this plan in place because I need to know whether if 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 Kieran like right now he woke up this morning with a tummy ache and now he's resting on the floor and he just wants to sleep. I'm like, does that disqualify me from going to work just because I have someone? And everybody's gonna have their own. I need to have some plan in place to answer these questions to keep people safe and. That's exactly it. And so my question to you as well is you mentioned that it seems as though the younger kids, six years, maybe seven years, up into adolescence, may not transmit as easily. Is there any theories why that like young kids may not? Is it because their bodies are so small, so you don't have as much virus? Or I mean, I'm just like looking in my mind or is there any <laughs> theories for it? You know, I I don't know because okay. it, clearly lots of other viruses can spread super well really, <laughs> among young really kids, well, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. So it's, it's a little bit surprising, actually. I, I, I don't know what the, yeah. what the biological mechanism is behind that. It's, I think it's still, yeah, still something that we're yeah. going to be looking at for a while to come. Yeah. The fact that I just suggested it because they're, they're little, that it may not transmit just shows me how absolutely ignorant I am of science. <laughs> so I love just, it. I just love P- it. That's PSA, <laughs> everyone. I, my theory is that because they're little, <laughs> so totally wrong. Closer to the ground. So <laughs> yeah, you know, cool, the yeah. droplets fall yeah, a little bit more easily. Totally. Um, it is true that I can't go in the air. Okay. We're going to keep going here. Bruce from Australia. Thank you so much for emailing us back. He was letting, me, letting us know about how there's rising confirmation case in Australia. He has a question for you, Stephen. Here's he's apparently a source came from a breakdown of quarantine travelers from overseas. That's where it came from into Australia. The big debate here is on suppression versus elimination. So his question to you is how long and at what cost is, is, is elimination if we're to choose that track? Yeah. So that's that's great that, that these, this is the vocabulary that they're speaking into because all of these words sort of have distinct meanings from a public health perspective. So there's we can think about suppression, elimination, eradication. All of these are sort of different things that have different nuanced meanings. Mm. So eradication, in my understanding, being the most severe, basically meaning that that's like what we did with smallpox, where there's none of it left except for in vials and laboratories. That's you know yeah. it's great, but we're that, that's not where we're headed with. <laughs> COVID for, for, for a very long time, at least. Okay. So elimination is, is a local phenomenon where you basically have no local sustained transmission of something, even if you have very small outbreaks, I think. Okay. Whereas suppression means that there, there could be limited sustained transmission. And basically, you're just trying to keep it at low levels, uh, presumably in this case, at levels that are low enough to manage through testing and tracing, mm-hmm. as opposed to widespread societal lockdowns. So basically, okay. the question is, from what I can tell, is like, do we want to keep all COVID out of our borders, or can we tolerate some transmission and just sort of accept that some people might get it, but we're just going to try to avoid these big flare-ups to the extent that we're able. 
I think that's a great question, and it's one I have absolutely no idea how to answer, other than <laughs> the uh, the the fact that I think that, boy, I think that elimination is an incredibly tall order, especially for a country you know as as large and diverse as Australia is, certainly as the United States is, who has travelers coming in from all over the world at different times. You know, it's it's really difficult to imagine a scenario in which true elimination is is sustainable without some really massive effort and really you know just like a huge a huge burden on society now 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 maybe maybe that's worth it you know depending on what we think covid could do if it gets past that elimination phase it may well be worth it and that's that's a political decision at that point because that's that's really weighing weighing goods and they're 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 a very diverse set of goods that are hard to measure against one another that where where sort of public health can speak to one side of that but really it's 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 a very it's a very human and very political decision at that point but from the public health perspective i do think that elimination is 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 a tall order and and I have trouble imagining even how that would be totally possible. Now, suppression, I think, is probably something that that is much more possible, um, and it's probably a more realistic scenario moving forward. Trying to keep cases to the point where testing and tracing is enough to prevent big flare-ups of infection. So, my guess is that that's probably the direction that things will head, just from a pragmatic standpoint. But it'll be really interesting to see what different measures different countries adopt. Curious that when you can talk about suppression. Is there like a demarcation for what that really means in the sense of to the level by which contact tracing and those things are are easily able to be able to do? What is that like? Is there like a number or like how do you know like, hey, I think we're there or it's like, oh, we got a feel for it. Like, seems like things are good. We can we can handle it. Or is there like a scientific like, no, once we get to here, that's usually about where we can engage this in a more yeah. uh, wholehearted way. Different infections that we're very familiar with do have pretty distinct cutoffs that that are often just sort of there's a consensus as to what constitutes suppression, yeah. but we're not at that point with with COVID and and it, and it matters so incredibly much on the on the public health resources that are available in any given setting. If if you've only got two contact tracers, then you're gonna you're gonna <laughs> exit out of that suppression phase pretty darn quick. <laughs> That's you know, true. so um, employment. It's uh, yeah, exactly. So so that matters a lot too. And it, but I think that that underscores another important thing is that suppression to some extent is is in our control not only to the the effort that we exert in in finding individual cases but in in the sort of funding and the sort of resources that we allocate and that we're building up right now the sort of training that we do that sort of raises that level of of what constitutes suppression and really what we're trying to avoid is is sort of these big shifts from being able to manage an epidemic through contact tracing to things sort of spiraling out of control and needing much broader societal outcomes. So so those are the sort of levels that we're thinking in. And, and there aren't clear numbers behind that, but it, it can definitely be helped by hiring people, training people, expanding the capacity for that kind of for that kind of effort. And you were saying, Stephen, this was actually almost kind of a fascinating even question to consider. Like just because like you just seen Australia with their intensely proactive nature. And you were just saying like just 200 cases and they locked down for six weeks. And here we are in the U.S. just dominating the score on coronavirus. Uh, yeah. And just just a two different wild worlds. It blows my mind. It's, you know, it, it, barring any sort of judgment aside, it just it just is is really unbelievable to me the just the difference just the difference in experiences that different places are having with respect to this virus right now and the difference in responses that we have i mean it was like yeah you're, you're right it was like 200 cases and i think it was at that point melbourne was shut down for six weeks and i was like oh my god like you know that is that is just such such a fundamentally different response than 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 we're seeing right now in the united states and there's yeah, it's just it's just truly mind blowing. I think it's easy to forget and to assume that sort of people's experience everywhere is roughly similar, but like, man, it's, it's <laughs> that is just like such a fundamentally different different totally. approach to responding yeah. to the pandemic. Yeah, and and again, that's that's a that's a political decision. That's yeah. that's something that needs to be made based on the weighing of different goods, and, and to a certain extent, sort of we've chosen one thing here in the states, and they've chosen another thing in Australia, and it's yeah. That's that's just where we're at right now. <laughs> and I think sometimes we choose the other thing and we flip flop yeah. here. I mean, at least yeah. we now heard that just recently uh, White House administration has uh, seemed like explicitly condoned uh, face masks, which is a really yeah. right, nice thing to hear. Right. I applaud that. Uh, yeah, that's yep. a huge, a huge, great step. So another one we keep going here. I talked to my friend, Stephen, just the other day and we were having a chat. And I was talking about, man, you know, September, October could be rough. And, you know, we're already seeing Texas and Florida reading, you know, reaching some sense of capacity in the hospitals. And then he immediately responded, 
you know, gosh, you're just listening to the media. Like I have doctors that I'm talking to and they're, they're like, there's like, it's maybe 10% up in the hospitals. There's plenty of space. There's no big deal. And then, then, then he throws this like side hook to me and then mentions that, Hey, there's even this, like uh, this lab that only, only produces positive results for COVID hundred percent positive results. So how likely is that? You know, so leading this whole concoction of dude, you're just getting blown by the, by the media. This is not a big deal. Lockdowns are only for keeping the hospitals down, which I agree. And there's no need for it. And there's been only New York is the only one that ever even showed a sign of that. And that, and, and it's kind of ridiculous. So I'm going to turn this back to you. Here I am part of this podcast, had no idea how to respond. How do I, first of all, what is the truth? If you know anything about this, like, is there, is, is, is this, is there, is Florida and Colorado, uh, not Colorado, but Texas and Arizona suffering at any level and the, the positive test cases? And then how do we discuss this with people? Yeah. So, yeah, I think I'll, it'd be, I'd love to address sort of these specific questions and then maybe talk a little bit about just sort of this this phenomenon. So, right. So you you mentioned this conversation that you had had earlier, and I, I, I spent a while just sort of digging up data. You know, I, I wanted to figure out, like, what's what is going on? And you know, as a as somebody who's been following public health for a really long time, I sort of know roughly sort of where to look and how to follow these trails and 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 there are things that any that anyone can do, but I think that there's a really interesting thing going on here. So so basically, what I ended up doing was was looking at at Florida as a case. There had been a recent report in a number of news agencies that there were on the order of fifty odd hospitals in Florida whose ICU capacities were were full, maxed out, no more room at the ICU. And and so I wanted to see where that came from. And many of the news articles that I saw weren't very well cited, but a few of them were. And so I followed them up. And it turns out that number was coming from Florida's central hospital management. That you know, it's publicly reported data. They're the people that manage Medicare and Medicaid in Florida. They're like they're like Florida's hospital management group. Yeah. And they have a spreadsheet that is tracking week to week hospital capacity. Pulled down that spreadsheet, looked at it, and sure enough, there are 53 hospitals that had no more room at the ICU, mm. right? And yeah. so, and and that was on a list of about 200 hospitals. Okay. And so, basically, what what that's suggesting is that there there are a lot of hospitals that still have room, but there's a sizable minority that seem to be full. Now, there's also a lot that can be done in hospitals to expand capacity. So, even though the hospital's stated ICU capacity might be full, there they might be going into overflow, surge capacity, sorts of things, which yeah. allow them to handle patients who are coming in at a higher volume. And I don't know what the status is there, but I do know that that the 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 reports that were in the media are factual. They're accurate. They're right. There's those, those hospitals are at their stated ICU capacity. And I think, you know, there's there's this real difficulty here where it's like there's there's this real, I think, a tendency to to really value sort of personal and anecdotal evidence. Your friend basically saying, like, you know, I I know people in hospitals and their hospitals aren't full. And it's like, that's true. There, there are a lot of hospitals that aren't full. Yeah. And also, the hospitals that are full are often in places that are distinct and geographically separate from the hospitals that aren't. They're, they're often in underserved communities among people who are essential workers. These are the hospitals that are full, and they're full of different, you know, like the, of, of, frankly, you know, a lot of, a lot of racial minorities and, and people of, in poorer communities. Like these are the people who the epidemic is hitting hardest. And, and there's, there's a lot of segregation still, you know, just in, in living communities right now and different hospitals serve different communities. So knowing someone who works at a hospital that isn't full, I mean, that's great. I'm glad that not all of the hospitals are completely overwhelmed sure. and hopefully we can help divert traffic to those hospitals that still have resources. You know, that's, that's a very good thing. And that was true in New York city. It, it, not all of the hospitals in New York city were overwhelmed, but but many were. And I think that, you know, the, the epidemic is still certainly in terms of people being admitted to hospital is still accelerating in Texas and in Florida. And so hospitals that are full are, are still seeing patients coming in. Yeah. So, so I think that, that sort of what, what those statements are glossing over is a lot of variability. You, you look at the CDC web, website on hospital capacity. And I think it said like in Florida that basically 75% of ICU beds or 80% were full and there was 20% left. And so if you look at that number, you say, well, there's still plenty of room, right? But, the, but at specific hospitals, uh, there's a lot of variation. And so I think that's what that overlooks and that, that overlooks that there are specific communities that are getting hammered by this right now and others that are relatively left unscathed. And if we, if we ignore that fact, then we can come away with, with sort of false, false conceptions of what's happening. That's so, great. 
Yeah. So I think it's, it's difficult and it's, there's, there's this notion of like, like, how do we know, know what to believe? And I think that there's, you know, what we're trying to do is sort of bring in information from all of these diverse sources. You know, I, I'm, I, we have the privilege of talking to Mark and hearing what's going on at his hospital. I know a number of other people who are hospital workers in, in New York and in Florida and sort of hearing what's going on on the ground there. And, and I've heard from some of them that, that their hospitals are filling up and getting full. So, but then also there's the different data that's coming in. Do we trust the data sources and these sorts of things? And, and there's never going to be a conclusive evidence of, of any one specific thing. We, we can't reach a level of mathematical proof for really anything that matters in life. <laughs> and, and so what we're left with is sort of these converging probabilities. That's, that's, that's an idea from John Henry Newman, yeah. where, where we're just trying to like do the best that we can with, with, with these different sources of evidence and trying to synthesize them in the most reasonable way, knowing that there's, there's always going to be this element of, there, there's going to be this gap between belief and absolute certainty that, that can't really be done away with. But I think our responsibility is, is to sort of cultivate the sorts of ability to rely on diverse sources of information, to understand what those are, and to know how to synthesize them. And that's really only something that can happen with practice, with communication, with community, with with seeking out opinions that differ from ours, and really checking the the claims of the people who disagree with us and who who seem to be coming to different conclusions and trying to understand what's behind it. Great. I love that idea of converging probabilities. It's such a good, like just, just, just tagline that in the end it is, it's complicated. And I keep saying this and it's so easy just to play the numbers game. Like you said, there's 53 hospitals that are overrun. There's out of maybe 200. Look, there's plenty of room, but that, that's the mind, the mind's propensity is always to simplify. And I get it. It's probably evolutionary propensity. Like, like I got to find out quickly whether I need to run from this lion or, or fight him. Right. But, 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 but it's hard to get into that. We, we constantly get into that. That we, re- we reduce everything to its simplest form so we can make to make a decision. But with modernity and post-modernity, it becomes so much harder because now we have all this information. It's not just whether there's a line in front of me. There's data all over the place that creates complications. And that's a good thing because we, that means we're more nuanced. We could take a much more nuanced approach. We can see more more variables and make better decisions. But we've got to realize that just because, well, you know, some hospitals are full. And on top of that, it's the whole idea that you're saying, Stephen, that it's not like if you do things now that things stop now. They continue to rise for two to three weeks and maybe it might be a month before you see your measures. And so if you're already seeing 53 hospitals run, maybe it's a time to be in high alert because even if you start now, you might have three or four more weeks of increased cases and 53 could be all 200. I'm not saying it is, you just don't know, right? And so all these factors are being put in place. So sometimes... Like it seems like we're crying wolf, but because the wolf is actually really far away, and some people can actually see the wolf coming, right? Yeah, right. Um, and that and that's the complexity of all. Love it. Thanks so much for that, Stephen. I really appreciate that. We only have a few more minutes left. I want to land on a couple articles. I said just on a deeper reflection. First one was why some people fear social isolation more than COVID-19. I think we don't take this seriously enough, especially among teenagers and adolescents, seeing people. I'm on college a lot and how much this affects, you know, at the very beginning of March, Stephen, I was thinking, man, this is going to be the biggest wake up call to so many people who are already isolated, disconnected because they're obsessed with social media, but they get just enough fix from physical contact that makes them still stay in that uh, really another pandemic of their own life. And that's that isolation. So I was thinking, man, this is gonna be a great wake up call. We're going to like rise to the occasion. Now, in so many ways, it was, it, it was definitely a wake up call, but it was a wake up call. I think of our, of, of, the, of the disparity of our culture in many ways and politics and that kind of stuff. But I'm seeing now the length of this, how long this has been going. It's been really severely affecting. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm with my wife and, and I'm with my kids. So at least I have some, some sense of physical contact. But I think my mother-in-law who has none, you know, and, and, and teenagers and how it's affecting them and the depression rate and how much more sensitive and how we really need to, as public health need to take this into consideration. And I totally agree. It's probably an overlooked thing. that's not talked about enough that like, look, there's implications that are really bad, maybe just as bad as COVID-19 in certain populations that really struggle with this. And I think, I don't have much to say except for it, it awakens the the idea that connection also there's nothing that can replace a physical hug. I know that man that like that nothing can replace this the physical embrace uh, at this and at the same time there needs to be a call a calling to like have a deeper connections with people. So I want to land on this. There's another article that is related to this. It was just looking at the people dealing with COVID 
dealing with the people who were really struggling, dealing with those who were actually maybe happier, actually kind of rising to the occasion and what was distinctive with the two. And a few things, I mean, these are kind of obvious things, but it's a great way to close and call you guys to something that's a little more intentional, that this is a time by which we're in it for a few more months on the long haul to be more intentional about our days and our weeks, to keep ourselves motivated, happy, connected, fulfilled in life to the best we can in light of our limitations. But the things that they, they saw that really brought people down was passively scrolling through social media, of course. I mean, I, I mean I'm actively sc- scrolling through it because of our our our. our our, our, our podcast, but it's, it's tough to constantly to, to see these things in my face all the time. I want, I want to, you know, I don't mind the top golf experience, even though I'm like, this is not healthy for anyone, but a sense of, of, of awareness that there is something other than this in, in my life and it's other connections. And the second one is interacting with people purely through chat or text that this, that, that these people, these, these ones are the highly negative results to people for sure. That so the, the, the response was da- definitely daily exercise. Those who did some kind of exercise. If you walk, walk fast. If you run, do some sprinting, right? If you don't have much time, you can sprint for 10 minutes. If you don't have the capacity, you can walk for uh, briskly for 10 minutes, but get your heart pumping, get outside. It's so important. Self-care, hobbies, relaxation, pick up a hobby, engage a hobby, pick up an old one. You know, I just sold my guitar, so I can't pick it back up again, but I, it, uh, the family's thankful because it would just be really, really, really terrible. <laughs> relaxation, spiritual activities, those who pray, meditate, relaxation, hobbies, exercise, meditation, and not just text, but a lot of FaceTime. And I, I get a lot of energy by being with Steven and Mark weekly with this, just seeing their faces. Really, there are humans outside of this world who are my friends. And one day I will see them face to face again. And the last thing they saw is going out of your way to help people. That is huge. And, you do, and just because you're confined does not mean you can't help. You can actually help even more because we're more sensitive to those people who are on the fringes, margins, who are struggling, who could use financial, lots of different kinds of help. It just goes back to living the real, this idea of the margin. And that's really is the whole four, 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 uh, four framework of, of having to live the most ordered life. Check it out, living the real. It's on, I think it's episode four about what I mean by margin. But this idea of that you really establishing permanence in your life, looking at life of discovery, not trying to get sucked into like, oh, this sucks. I can't stand this. That language... Uh, there's always a time event, but the majority of our time needs to be fixed on where is the gift? Where is the opportunity on this? Responding in gratitude. And again, just like the other one is this idea of need to be able to give ourselves to another. And we follow that four framework. We live a happier life, especially if we move and have exercise to get that stress out of our life. So we're going to in there, do some of this. If you haven't exercised in like four months like me, I'm going to get outside. I'm going to do some brisk walking. Uh, I'm going to engage in meditation, prayer, more face time with my friends. And definitely, I'm going to really strengthen my ability to make a, a strong act of generosity each day to someone that is unusual and outside the box. Have a great week. We'll see you with Mark next week. And take care. Bye-bye.